Welcome back, everyone, to the Ranking Presidents Podcast. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. And Brad, we're back from a mini hiatus. And the first time we got to talk about, right off the top, is Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a new Sonic the Hedgehog movie coming out really and, soon and in April. me and Brad grew up as Sonic fans. Yes. And so, therefore, you'll be hearing us probably a couple times use the term Sons of Gerald and laugh after the fact. Yes, exactly. So there's Dr. Eggman, who's the main Sonic bad guy. Yes. And he had a grandfather named Gerald who did a lot of fun, edgy things with the Sonic the Hedgehog lore. Now, yes. some of our viewers are super old and some of them are super young. And what delineates that is, are you a fan of Sonic or not? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so Gerald, he created something known as Shadow the Hedgehog. Which <laughs> who is... is evil Sonic the Hedgehog, essentially. Yeah, essentially. So... For, so we're going to be referencing that not, and if you don't like Sonic or don't understand what it is, we apologize in advance. But <laughs> but we're not sorry about it. No, not at all. But we're coming down from the high of Nixon into, I'd say, probably the last forgotten presidency of Gerald R. Ford. I think that's a good way to put it, because like, there's so many like iconic people mm-hmm. just from this point forward. It's like, oh, and there was Ford. Yeah, exactly. Because after him, you have Jimmy Carter, and then you have the Beast. The, the beast for good or bad, oh, yeah. Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah, he's an absolute beast. Yeah. So, okay, right off the top, what do your parents remember about Gerald Ford? Yeah, my my parents remember mainly the big thing of Gerald Ford um, pardoning Nixon. Yeah. And they also remember a little bit of the SNL stuff, which I'm going to go over Ooh, later. Oh, nice. Because nice. this is the first time we're going to reference Saturday Night Live. Nice. This is proof. What about your parents? So... <laughs> I asked mom, and she was like, yeah, I didn't really care at this point. She was like, I mean, they were like 9 or 10 when this stuff happened. Yeah. But my dad was like, the only thing I remember about Gerald Ford is him falling down the stairs. Yep, yep. (laughs) There's actually a song of Animaniacs from the 90s that goes over all the presidents, and the only line they have about Ford is Gerald Ford fell down a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, his, his presidency was short. Yes, very short. But tell us a little bit about who was Gerald Ford as a man. All right, so, um... He was born by a different name. Really? Gerald Ford was not even close to his birth name. Really? His birth name was Leslie Lynch King Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie Lynch King Jr. Yep, yep. I don't even know how to process that name. (laughs) Well, before you can even process it, I'll give you the explanation. So, he was born... In Omaha, Nebraska, on July 14th, 1913, Mm -hmm. his mother, Dorothy Ayer Gardner, soon divorced the boy's father, a a wife-beating alcoholic. Okay. Bad man. Yeah. And moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. There, she met Gerald Rudolph Ford. Okay. The owner of a paint store, and married him in 1916. Dorothy called her son Junie, which soon became Jerry out of affection for the boy's new father figure. Leslie King Jr. did not learn of his biological father until he was a teenager. And after graduating from college, he officially changed his name to Gerald Rudolph Ford Jr. That is very interesting on a couple of levels. Oh, yeah. First of all is that divorce wasn't even that, wasn't very common back then. And it was taboo when it happened. Oh, yes, very taboo. It's... That's, I mean, we've had president, we've had a president before, Ulysses S. Grant, who sort of, you know, just let his name change mm-hmm. 
But this is interesting. This is a kid who, like, grows up admiring his new dad. And yeah. he's like, okay, I'll just maybe change my name to that. Yeah, because, like, my dad was, like, a piece of garbage. Yeah, so. makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. He often recalled his mother and her second husband with much affection, admiration, and love. So okay. it, it's good that that had a happy ending Yeah, a good family life. So he went to Yale. And at Yale, Ford rubbed shoulders with the sons of America's elite. And this is information I'm pulling from the Miller Center right away, uh, right off the bat, because like I found that I like I like the way the Miller Center like talks about the early the early life yes. as well, because like they really put a lot of prose with it. Uh-huh. Um, his law school classmates included several public officials, including Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, mm-hmm. Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, and Peace Corps Director Sergeant Shriver. Um, while at Yale, Ford also met Phyllis Brown, a blonde, beautiful mm. student attending Connecticut College for Women. The two shared a zest for life and fell in love, beginning what Ford later described as a, quote, torrid four-year affair. <laughs> uh, with any, whenever your sentence starts with the word torrid, I'm, I'm there for it. <laughs> we're, we're all the way in. Yeah. The romance ended, however, when Ford decided to return to Grand Rapids to practice... Law. (laughs) I'm going to be boring. (laughs) And Brown stayed in New York to continue her modeling career. So kind of an interesting little fling there. Mm, That sounds like like a plot to an anime. Yep. He's like, I got to return to the law. (laughs) (laughs) Back in Michigan, Ford opened a successful law practice. So he was one of the presidents who actually opened a law practice. Yeah, and actually was successful at it instead of, eh, they weren't very good. Yeah, actually carried out law. Um, in 1941 with his friend and future White House counsel, Philip uh, Buchan. At the same time, he became increasingly interested in politics. I don't want to get political. But you see. A Republican, Ford had supported Wendell Wilkie's unsuccessful run against FDR in the 1940 presidential election. And that's one of those that we didn't talk about because it's like a middle FDR election yeah. when he was just rolling over everybody. Yes. Um, Ford became politically okay. Uh, yeah, he became politically active in Grand Rapids, joining a group of Repo- Republican reformers called the quote Home Front. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of isn't Home Front the name of that villain from uh, the Boys? Oh, isn't Homelander. It? Homelander. Yeah. Pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. And they opposed the local Republican machine, headed by the arrogant and imperious boss, Frank McKay. <laughs> All these bosses have such ridiculous. Names. Oh yeah. At least he was anti-machine. Yeah. Um, so Ford joined the Navy following Pearl Harbor, and yeah, I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk a little bit about that later mm. um, in a fun, exciting new segment I have that might return. It might not. Um, but following his discharge from the Navy, Ford joined the law firm of Butterfield, Keeney, and Amberg in Grand Rapids, and continued to cultivate an interest in politics. He also met and began and began courting Elizabeth Betty Ann Bloomer, a 30-year-old woman known for her beauty and talent as a dancer. He's just going after all these he, fancy Yeah, he, he likes these artsy ladies. Yeah. Betty worked as the fashion coordinator for a department store in Grand Rapids. She was going through an amicable divorce. <laughs> <laughs> amicable. <laughs> We're on very good terms. Yeah. <laughs> she was going... Uh, so so uh, this divorce was from her first husband, um... And this was when the th- she met the 35-year-old Ford. So it's not, he got married later in life yeah. for most presidents. Mm-hmm. He called and asked for a date. Within months, Ford proposed and Betty accepted. 
although not wishing to incur the ire of the conservative Calvinists who populated his district. <laughs> Ford required that they wait until his primary campaign was over before they wed. <laughs> you can't anger the Calvinists. No, even today you can't make them angry. They'll get to you on Twitter. <laughs> oh, they will. They married on October 15th, 1948, in the midst of Ford's campaign for a seat in the U.S. House of Reps. During his first few terms in Congress, Ford demonstrated an ability to work with members of both parties. Mm, that, that definitely won't come back later. Oh yeah, definitely not. He won a reputation among his colleagues for hard work and integrity, and earned the trust of his fellow Republicans on the Hill including a young California legislator named Richard Nixon. <laughs> Ford supported General Dwight D. Eisenhower's bid for the Republican presidential nomination in 1952, largely because he agreed with Eisenhower's foreign policy views and, would, and was pleased that Nixon won the second spot on the ticket. You know, judging from like his time in Congress, seems like he was almost like a... Like a con conservative version of Joe Biden. That that seems to be what I'm getting at. He, mm -hmm. You know, he sort of you know rubbed shoulders, yeah. being like, "I'm not here to make waves. I'm here to work with both sides." Very middle of the road, like like un uh, inoffensive. Yeah, yeah. So Ford staked out an interesting place in the rapidly changing Republican Party of the 1960s. The GOP had both left and right wings. Mm -hmm. The former headed by the relatively liberal New York Nelson Rockefeller. Uh -huh. and the later commanded by the very conservative Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. Who lost very badly to LBJ. Very badly. Ford occupied the ideological ground between these two extremes, although his political and policy views had more in common with the Goldwater faction. Uh -huh. And something that we'll find in history most time is... There's progressive and there's conservative. If someone says they're a centrist, they're probably conservative. Yeah, they're probably conservative, <laughs> but they disagree with a few things. Yeah. They just don't like the tone. But yeah, and they don't like the label. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> At the 1964 Republican National Convention, Ford nominated his fellow Michigander. <laughs> Michigander. Is that, what the, is that what Michigan people are called? I don't know. Center? Michigan I don't... people tell us. <laughs> so Ford nominated his fellow Michigander and anti-Goldwater candidate, Governor George Romney for president. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Romney. That's a name I've heard before. I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, when Goldwater won the nomination, Ford fully supported the Arizona senator, even though he correctly surmised that Goldwater would lose to President LBJ. Uh -huh. And then, fast-forwarding a little bit, Nixon easily rewon the election as president in 1972, and Ford, too, was re-elected to Congress. Republicans, however, failed again to take control of the House of Reps, a fact that Ford would later blame on Nixon's refusal to campaign wholeheartedly for the party's congressional candidates. Mm, probably because he didn't trust them. <laughs> nope, he, he probably had some dirt on him. In the aftermath of the 1972 election, Ford told his family and friends that he would likely stand for election in 1974, hopefully win, and then retire from Congress in 77. <laughs> mm, if only he would have known. Best laid plans. As details about Watergate slowly came to light, another Nixon administration scandal briefly took center stage and brought Gerald Ford to even greater national prominence. In October 1973, Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned as part of a plea bargain, with the Justice Department resulting from its investigation into Agnew's acceptance of bribes while serving as Vice President and as mm -hmm. Governor of Maryland. I always forget that, that Agnew, like, literally took bribes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, no, no big deal. Yep. Just our vice president. Nixon asked Ford to be, the, to be the next VP, largely because Nixon's advisors and political allies told him that Ford was the only man on the president's shortlist whom the Senate and the House would support. It's like, he's really inoffensive. <laughs> Let's just pull him into this mess that's yep, going on. Yep. 
he really does seem like one of those like standard like decent dudes who was just like pulled into this garbage fight. Yep, yep. With the Watergate scandal looming, Nixon could not afford a confrontation with Congress. The Senate confirmed Ford by a vote of 92 to 3. The House did the same by a tally of 387 to 35. Ford took the oath of office on December 6, 1973, not in the White House, as Nixon requested, but in the well of the House of Representatives. Mm, that's interesting. You're not taking on the White House, you see. <laughs> we got things going on. <laughs> I need you in the White House because I, I just, I need to hear your voice in there. I have some very specific tapes that I need you to be on. <laughs> All right, let's talk about a little bit of presidential ham. Okay, yeah, we gotta hear about his personality. His personality and his physical description. Ford stood... Ford stood six feet tall and weighed about 195 pounds as president. So he was, he was kind of a skinny guy. Yeah, a little bit. He had blonde hair, which he combed straight back. Yep. <laughs> and small blue eyes. He sounds like, like oh, what's it? Richie Rich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With age, he retained the trim, muscular figure of his youth. <laughs> I like I like the thirsty presidential hand descriptions. Because yeah. like, you can tell some of them are thirsty for the presidents, yeah. and I love it. Yeah, that trim, muscular <laughs> His handsome features were characterized by a square jaw, somewhat fleshy nose, and generous mouth. (laughs) Okay, him and handsome Frank need to have, like, a modeling contest. (laughs) Okay, I need to look up what this guy looked like when he was was young. He was pretty good looking. All right, Gerald Ford Young. The real question is, who could do the better Bruce For those of of you who have watched Zoolander, you'll know exactly (laughs) what I'm talking about. Well, my goodness gracious, this man was pretty handsome. He was a very handsome man. Like, he, okay, by both modern standards and their standards, very good-looking guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He kind of—he he was almost, a bit of a chad. Yeah, he almost looks like how you would think like a Captain America would yep, look like. Yeah, that's the best way I can describe. He, he was also like big into football. He even yeah. like took like a really low-paying job pa- uh, coaching football for a mm-hmm. while. Our first football president. I love football presidents. They're beautiful. Peyton Manning needs to run for office. <laughs> Amen. Also. President Peyton. Eli can be his VP. <laughs> or Tony Dungy, better yet. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. All right. Uh, his broad grin revealed large, straight teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Except for weak knees, the result of football injuries, his yeah. health generally was sound. Although he took a lot of kidding in the press and from comedians for lack of coordination. Mm-hmm. He described himself as, quote, the most athletic president to occupy the White House in years. <laughs> right before he fell down the stairs. Yep. Ford was a right-hand, uh, right-handed sportsman, but wrote and ate with his left hand. He dressed sporty. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. All right, let's hear a little bit about his personality. By all accounts, Ford was open, friendly, forthright, honest, and considerate. He appeared to generally like people, and although a more than 30-year veteran of political wars, made remarkably few enemies along the way. Quote, he never in his life tried to outsmart anybody. Observer Bud Vistal, a Grand Rapids reporter and longtime Ford watcher, a Ford watcher, <laughs> quote, but if from intellectual hubris, a tormentor gave him a chance, Jerry would outdumb him <laughs> swiftly and deadpan. It might be days before the attacker would realize he'd been had. That's an anime line if I've ever heard one. That's great. Like, you don't even realize how badly you've been burned. <laughs> <laughs> when you think later, you're like, oh, 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 crap. <laughs> I got annihilated. Yeah. Okay, so here is a new segment mm-hmm. that's not super original, but I thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. Let's have out some miscellaneous fun facts about our okay. President Ford. And I got this from History.com. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there was like nine, and I picked like the most interesting ones. Mm. Okay, so on de- December 18th, 1944, the Monterey, Ford ship that he was stationed on, was one of many Navy ships hit by Typhoon Cobra, a massive storm that would sink three destroyers, damage numerous other ships, and injure hun- hundreds of sailors. According to Ford's obituary in the New York Times, a future president came within inches of losing his life when he was almost swept off the topside deck during the typhoon. That sounds a little bit like JFK's story. Mm-hmm. In late 1963, this is the next point, President LBJ appointed Ford to the Warren Commission investigating JFK's assassination. Mm-hmm. Ford later co-authored a book about the commission's findings titled, quote, Portrait of the Assassin. I did not know LBJ put it yeah. on the board. Years later, documents came to light revealing that Ford opened a private channel of communication with the FBI, then run by J. Edgar Hoover, about the commission's independent investigation. In 2008, two years after Ford's death, the Washington Post reported that among the 500 pages of the FBI's previously confidential file on the former president were memos revealing that Ford approached the FBI to offer them confidential information about the proceedings of the commission, including the fact, here comes the sauce, okay. that several members of the commission doubted the FBI's single gunman theory, <laughs> in which Ford was a strong believer. So there were some people high up in the FBI who were like, hmm, I don't think it was one person. No, no. We'll never know. Unless we do. (laughs) Unless we do. On the campaign trail in 1975, Ford weathered two different assassination attempts. That's nuts. On separate trips to California. (laughs) Both women. Hmm, that's interesting. In Sacramento on September 5th, the Secret Service apprehended Lynette Squeaky Fromm. (laughs) Squeaky. Her nickname was Squeaky. And get this, she was a former follower of Charles Manson. (laughs) He almost got killed by a Charles Manson follower named Squeaky. Squeaky. Yeah, I forget, Charles Manson's around this time. Yeah, yeah, he's lurking around. Yeah. And uh, after seeing her with a pistol at a crowded event in Capitol Park, barely two weeks later, radical activist Sarah Jane Moore fired a gun at the president in San Francisco. But a fellow bystander, a former Marine, knocked the weapon out of her hand. Both women were sentenced to life in prison. Moore was released on parole in 2009, <laughs> and while Fromm remains in jail. So there is, an, there is like a literal, like, Attempted assassin, like, running out there somewhere. That is nuts. I didn't think you could get out on parole after you tried to shoot the president. Yeah, I have no idea how that happened. Because most of the time when you hear about the assassins, it's always dudes. Very interesting yeah. it was two women. Now, here's what I will say. Okay, so Moore was released, and she was... Okay, so she was not the, the Manson follower. I would, I would just think that the Manson follower just would have, like, pleaded insanity or something. Mm-hmm. But she didn't. She's still in jail. Less than two months after her husband became president, Betty Ford was diagnosed with breast cancer and underwent a radical mastectomy. Always outspoken and candid, she used her influential position as first lady to speak out about the disease and its treatment, earning the enduring respect and affection of the American public. She also lobbied extensively for women's rights in the Equal Rights Amendment and was named Time Magazine's Woman of the Year in 75. Two years after leaving the White House after a family intervention, Betty Ford entered rehabilitation for alcohol abuse and dependency on pain medication. She was characteristically honest and open about her experiences with the public, and her efforts led to the opening of the Betty Ford Center, a treatment facility for women located on the campus of the Eisenhower Medical Center in California. 
She sounds like a really cool lady. Yeah, she went did. Through, went through a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, so, fucked about the Equal Rights Amendment. That has actually still not been passed, in part because of the work of a little group known as the Evangelicals, who surely oh, will not come up again. Man, like, they, they're not political, right? No, not at all. You Separation know, of church and state? Okay. Render under Caesar? No, no, not at all. You know, they're just they're just some good Christian folk. <laughs> <laughs> but Brad, that is the background and some fun facts about our president. But before we get into the meat of mm-hmm. his policy, what do you got for us? So, okay, state of the nation... It's really interesting you brought up the Greitz Amendment, because that leads right into our state of the nation. Excellent. And this one, okay, this one is technically one that happened under Nixon, but there was so much talk about Nixon, we just didn't have the time. There we go. So, Roe versus Wade. Oh, man, we're getting to the big old elephant in the room. Okay. So, let me set the, some context for you. So, prior to Roe v. Wade, abortion was a state's issue. So, this idea that it was completely legal, that's not true. It depended on the state. Yep. It was illegal in 30 states, but legal in some circumstances in 20 states. Interestingly enough, in the 18th century and into the 19th century, abortions were only illegal after the quickening. Basically meant when women could feel the baby move. So before then, legal. Dr. John Sedalius, in 1874, there had never been more reckless regard for life of the unborn in that era. That was back in 1874. Now, part of this actually comes from information from Phil Vischer, who's done a lot of He's he's a guy from Veggie Tales, but he also has talked a lot about abortion, a lot of the history of this. And uh, he has an excellent podcast called The Holy Post, right? Yep, great one. So one reason why abortion became criminalized in the late 1800s was actually not due to concerns over morality, but due to fears over poisoning. Mm. Because women were taking these abortive, abortive drugs yeah. that would make them sick. But abortion rates continued. In fact, in the 1930s to the 1960s, legal abortions ranged from 200,000 to 1.2 million a year through various means. Ironically, this is about the same level it is now. And this is just legal abortions, mind you. Yeah. There's all sorts of illegal abortions happening. Yeah, because you can't really count the illegal mm-hmm. abortions. And in fact, the year before Roe v. Wade, there were 600,000 legal abortions. But let's set the stage for the actual case. So there's a woman named Norma McCorvey, known by the pseudonym Jane Roe who wanted to have abortion but was illegal in Texas except to save a woman's life. She filed a lawsuit. The U.S. District Court for another district of Texas ruled in her favor, but then Texas appealed to the Supreme Court. And in fun fact, she would later become an anti-abortion advocate. Fascinating. In January 1973, the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment provides a right to privacy to protect a pregnant woman's right to privacy and to have an abortion. But, it, and this is from Wikipedia, it also ruled this right is not absolute and must be balanced against government's interests in protecting women's health and prenatal life. The court resolved this balancing test by tying state regulation of abortion to the three trimesters of pregnancy. During the first trimester, you couldn't prohibit them at all. During the second trimester, governments could require reasonable health regulations. During the third trimester, abortions could be prohibited entirely so long as the laws contain exceptions for cases where there is necessary to save the life or health of the mother. The court classifies the right to choose to have an abortion as fundamental, which required courts to evaluate challenged abortion laws under the strict scrutiny standard, the highest level of judicial review in the United States. Wow, I didn't realize it was given that designation. Yeah, which is why I think it's probably taken it so hard for them to overturn it. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, the initial reaction in a row, other than from Catholics, was pretty tepid. Many even conservative evangelicals are pretty supportive. How that changed is a long story, which we will cover in later episodes, but needless to say, you'll hear more about Roe in time to come. Oh, man. 
Because that all you, all we got to know at this point is that at this point most Christians kind of chill with it. Yeah, or at least it's like oh, I guess this thing happened. We haven't really. It, there there are a number of ways to think about it. You can go the cynical route where it was sort of done by these thought leaders, or you can go the optimistic route. It's like well they kind of really didn't have think about it that much. And yeah. Sort of like a whispered thing. Mm-hmm. And I have one other thing. Next up, America is now two hundred years old. Wow. On July 4th... Where did the time go? 1976, America celebrated its 200th birthday. It was marked by sailing ships that went from New York City to Boston, which was named Operation Sail. President Ford went down the Hudson River to salute these international fleets of ships. Johnny Cash was Grand Marshal of the Parade. (laughs) And funny enough, the event was attended by Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. Oh, that's fun. She would even represent the Bicentennial Bell, a replica of the Liberty Bell cast of the same foundry. It said, for the people of the United States, for the people of Britain, let freedom ring. <laughs> Which is pretty ironic, you yeah. know, revolted from Britain, that 200 years later, here's a nice bell. <laughs> so, okay. Let's get into Gerald Ford's policy. What did he even do? So, he had a tough task ahead of him. As a president who hadn't even been elected, as Curtis mentioned, he took over for disgraced Nixon. He had to restore faith in the presidency while dealing with all the messes left. For him, was he up to the task? Well, let's lead read a little bit from his inaugural address. He said, The oath I've taken is the same oath that was taken by George Washington and by every president under the Constitution, by assure the presidency under extraordinary circumstances. This is an hour of history that troubles our minds and hurts our hearts. Therefore, I fear it's my first duty to make an unprecedented compact with our countrymen. Not an inaugural address, not a fireside chat, not a campaign speech, just a straight talk among friends. I need to be first in many. I'm acutely aware you have not elected me as your president by your ballot, so I ask you to confirm me as your president with your prayers. And I hope that such prayers will be the first of many. If you have not chosen me as secret ballot, neither have I gained the office by any secret promises. I have not campaigned either for the presidency or the VP. I have not subscribed to any partisan platform. I am indebted to no man and only to one woman, my dear wife, as I begin this very difficult job. I believe that truth is the glue that holds our government together, not only of our government, civilization itself. That bond, though strained, is unbroken at home and abroad. And my public and private acts, dear president, I expect to follow my instinct of openness and candor with full confidence that honesty is always the best policy. And the most famous line, my fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Oh yeah, it's definitely over. No long-lasting effects mm-hmm, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to restore the golden rule of political process and let brotherly love purge our hearts of suspicion and of hate in the wake of Watergate. <laughs> but of course, this is all easier said than done, yep, right? Yep. The economy is in bad shape. Bussing, abortion, women's rights were all hot topics. And of course, Watergate had caused immense damage to the presidency. Like, I don't think we understand just how much Watergate destroyed, like... Not just destroyed, public but, faith. Yeah, public faith in the presidency of just people started to realize, oh, wait a second, the president can be a crook. Mm-hmm. So, Ford was known for being fair, decent, and having a good deal of integrity and a compromising spirit. As president, he cultivated an everyman style, toasting his own English muffins, opening doors by himself, and chatting with guards. That's why we are sons of Gerald. Gerald. Sons of Gerald. But he was a bit accident-prone, which led to Chevy Chase mocking him on Saturday Night Live by falling downstairs, injuring himself and others, and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. LBJ's opinion was, well, it's because he played too much football without a helmet. Ford personally thought Chevy Chase's bit was funny, but his accident-prone nature didn't help his presidency at all, because, you know, it's kind of like you come right after Watergate and you're bumbling. People are going to think you're a joke. Yep. Now, his first major tax as president was what to do with Nixon. His response is the thing he is most known for. 
One month into his presidency, he gave Nixon a, quote, full, free, and absolute pardon for all offenses he committed or may have committed. So let's dig What if he just strung him up right there? Yeah, yep. Let's (laughs) dig into this. So his reasoning was that Nixon had been through enough. Nixon's health was suffering, and the trial of the president would be too divisive for the nation. (laughs) Well, you know, we just gotta cool everything down. This man is Joe Biden. I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, the more I think about it, the more, like, he's just Joe Biden. Yep. On the private level, Ford was concerned such a trial would affect his ability to govern, and he wanted his presidency to be free of questions from Nixon. Nixon. And he, after leaving the White House, Ford would point to Burdick versus U.S. as a standard, which stated that a pardon carries an imputation of guilt, and his acceptance carries a confession of guilt. So he's like, look, I'm not saying he's not guilty. You know, we're pardoning him. That's saying he's guilty. But of course, the American public did not take this lying down. The majority of Americans wanted Nixon punished for his crimes. Ford's press secretary, Gerald, also named Gerald, but with a J, Terhorst, resigned in protest. Republicans questioned the timing of it all, and Ford's popularity plummeted. And because of this, Ford agreed to come before a House Judiciary Committee called the Huntgate Committee to answer questions. The first time president has done this since the time of Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. So he before for Congress, and the committee was worried because people wondered whether Ford discussed his pardon with Nixon and made a deal with him. Ford said that a pardon was an option presented for discussion by Nixon's chief of staff, Haig, but Ford said he never promised a pardon. He said there was no deal, period, under no circumstances. Now, most historians say there was no secret deal, but again, this incident didn't help him. Behind closed doors, though. Yep. Now, Ford also had to deal with Nixon's old cabinet and staff. His advisors told them to keep them on for a bit and then slowly replace them. He would put into power people like Nelson Rockefeller at BVP, a moderate to liberal Republican. Then Donald Rumsfeld became staff coordinator, but he didn't go along with Rockefeller, and eventually, a man known as Richard Cheney became White House Chief of Staff. Mm. Which you might know him by another name. Dick Cheney. He rises! It's crazy that, like, I forget how old Dick Cheney is. He's really old as heck. Yeah, but he was around all the way back then. However, in Congress, Ford was doing bad. Democrats had a lean, and in the midterms, they picked up 43 seats in the House and four in the Senate for a 291 to 144 advantage in the, ha- in the House and a 61 to 39 lead in the Senate. Whoa, that is massive. That is crushing. In addition, even Republicans left want to reassert congressional power away from a powerful executive branch. So they were kind of like, all right, we don't want the president to do a whole lot. Mm. But let's talk about a little policy. So on the economic side, for to deal with inflation, unemployment, and the energy crisis. The economic crisis was caused in part from increased foreign competition from a larger American workforce. The baby boomers are out for work and boomers. there's too many of them. Economics Economists call this stagflation. In order to handle inflation, Ford proposed a tax hike and reduce federal spending. Ford asked Americans to wear buttons with the acronym WIN. Whip inflation now. This unfortunately was not a win. They produced 12 million buttons, but only 100,000 requests came in for them. Wow. Most Americans, including the media, thought it was really stupid. (laughs) Then Ford said, well, let's call for a $16 billion tax cut. Democrats called this a flip-flop and ended up passing a tax cut of $22 billion, but raised spending on federal programs. Mm. Ford thought this was irresponsible, but he had no choice but to sign the bill as a veto would play into Democrats' hands that he failed at the economy. Ford said, okay, no more new government spending. And he was able to get Congress to pass the Revenue Adjustment Act in 1975, which gave another tax cut of $9 billion. 
Then he tried to get a tariff on imported oil and end price controls on domestic oil, as well as put a new tax on domestic oil producers. And this was all because he wanted to stimulate that domestic oil production. He had to throw a tax on just to appease Americans as all oil companies as greedy. And Democrats and Republicans both hated this because it was like, okay, you want to boost the oil, but you're also throwing a tax on there. Like, we just don't like this. Eventually, they were able to pass the Omnibus Energy Bill, which saw a 12% reduction in domestic oil prices while ending price controls over a 40-month period. Democrats said ending these controls would raise the price of oil. Republicans were mad for it allowed oil prices to lower. But by 1976, the economy was doing a little bit better. The consumer price index went down to 5.8%, and unemployment went from 9% to 7.4%. Okay, that's some progress. Yep. Then Ford had to deal with a little thing called busing. So, in Boston, a judge had ordered the city school system to integrate and bus black students to white schools. In return, mobs of whites taunted the kids and fights broke out. Then a white student was stabbed and a riot broke out. U.S. District Court Judge Arthur Garrity Jr. said the school system was desegregating too slow. Democrats and the only black mayor of his cabinet, Secretary of Transportation William Coleman, told Ford to do something. Ford wanted to stay on the sidelines because, although he had attended an integrated school, he reasoned government need to end de jure by law segregation and not de facto segregation, just by circumstances. Ford didn't do much with the Boston situation, but he did say he was willing to send in troops. So he kind of... Oh, and people, eh. if there's one thing that gets bipartisan support, it's the president sending troops places to yep. quell things. Yep. And then something else happened. New York City almost went bankrupt. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So New York City was going bankrupt. It asked for help, but Ford said no. <laughs> New York Times had the best headline for this. It called the summation, Ford to City. Drop dead. <laughs> when the governor of New York said it had a plan to put the city on more stable ground, Ford reversed and offered support for a $2.3 billion loan. He said, I hope they understand. This is it. Come hell or high water. This is it. Some have suggested he did this to satisfy Senator James Buckley of New York, but once again, this reversal angered Republicans because they were like, you said you were going to let it go bankrupt, and then you don't. Now, when it comes to abortion... We do know what he thought, but this is only in response to abortion during the third debate he had with one Jimmy Carter. Hmm. Question. Do you support a Constitution amendment on abortion? Jimmy Carter said, I think abortion is wrong. I don't think government ought to do anything to encourage abortion, but I don't favor a Constitutional amendment on the subject. But sure of an amendment within the confines of the Supreme Court ruling, I would do everything I can to minimize the need for abortions. Ford. I support the Republican platform's calls for a Constitutional amendment that would outlaw abortions. I favor the particular Constitution Amendment the term of the states, the individual rights of the voters in these states, the chance to make a decision by public referendum. I call that the People's Amendment. I think if you really believe people of the state ought to make a decision of a matter of this kind, then we ought to have a federal Constitution Amendment that would permit each one of the 50 states to make the choice. So really, when you think about that, that's kind of like playing both sides yeah. a little bit. Because it's like, well, let's just kick it back to states' rights. So let's turn into foreign policy a little bit. Please tell me it was better. So when it came to foreign policy, Ford aimed at first to largely keep Nixon's ideas in place. First of all, Ford and Kissinger, who had been kept in Ford's cabinet, met with the Soviets and reiterated their intention for detente. Basically, a relaxation of tensions between the countries. Let's just cool it down. (laughs) Cool Cool the temperature. Cool the temperature in the room. However, things were still intense. Due to the Yom Kippur War, as well as Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, a Democrat of Washington who had tied American trade to relaxation of Soviet immigration policies. The president met with Leonid Brezhnev in 1975 to sign the Helsinki Accords, which recognized boundaries of European countries established since the end of World War II. They also signed the Vladivostok Accords, 
which provide an outline for a successor to the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. However, he failed to determine the exact details of this coming treaty. However, there was trouble stirring. In Angola, three factions were fighting each other in a civil war, and the Soviets, Chinese, and the U.S. were supplying financial and military aid to different factions, as well as the CIA and Cuba troops as well. However, many people didn't like this cooling down. Hmm. Conservatives and attacked it. Ronald Reagan himself believed they had underestimated the Soviets, and he called it a morally bankrupt strategy. The Soviets, in his opinion, were evil, and the U.S. should criticize rather than accommodate. Then you have Vietnam. So, in 1973, right after Nixon leaves, war between North and South Vietnam resumed. American experts said South Vietnam would fall soon. Congress gave South Vietnam $700 million in military and humanitarian aid. Ford wanted more military aid, but Congress and American people wouldn't hear it. Then, in April 1975, communist forces took over Saigon. Americans watching the television as U.S. helicopters, some of the civilians clinging to the landing gears, departed oh, from various man. buildings, including the U.S. Embassy. Ford was able to get out tens of thousands of Vietnamese refugees. And then, Ford had to send in commandos to free a cargo ship called the Maya Guez that had been seized by the Khmer Rouge. More than 40 Americans died in this operation, but they were able to get back the cargo ship. Although it did help Ford's approval reign, historians have questioned whether this operation was too risky and was more focused on punishing the Khmer Rouge. Then, okay, here's a big one. News came out the CIA had conducted an internal st study on its activities, which was known as the Family Jewels. <laughs> In fact, they named it this. Oh, that's great. This study revealed the CIA had not only spied on American citizens, but also had attempted to assassinate foreign leaders. Ford Whoa! Said, Ford said, I knew nothing of the Family Jewels. <laughs> I didn't know of them. And he said, Rockefeller, you go investigate. The senator in the House formed a church committee led by Senator Frank Church. They castigated the agency for its activities. Due to this, the CIA director, William Colby, lost his job, and Congress got greater oversight of the CIA. And Ford would end up fine with Congress over the CIA's role in Angola. So, before we get to ranking him, let's talk a little bit about the election in 1976. Yeah, so, it's definitely an interesting one. So, this is the first election he's actually taken part of as president. For a difficulty getting nominated as he was challenged by Ronald Reagan. For oh, the I did not know this. Yes. Conservative Republicans hated Ford's economic policies and didn't like detente. And Reagan was likable, of course. Likable guy. Mm -hmm. Ford was barely able to sweep Guy with 60 more delegates. Wow. And to do that, he had to call in favors by offering them positions. <laughs> so he, he barely eked out the primary against Reagan. His opponent, James Earl Carter Jr., known as Jimmy, was not that well-known. Jimmy! He was a peanut farmer, nuclear engineer, and retired officer of the Navy. He said he was a Washington outsider who would bring morality, decency, and trust back to American politics. He would say, I will never lie to you. Aww. He won the Democratic nomination easily and put Senator Walter F. Mondale as his running mate. Ford was behind Carter 34 points in the polls, but he tried his best to play catch-up, stretching his honesty and experience and saying recovery was on the way for the economy. And Carter's lead did slip when he said in a Playboy interview that he had, quote, lust in his heart after many women. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, he said that in an interview with Playboy magazine. <laughs> Man, just, just imagining, like, what people can get away with now. Specifically yeah. Trump. Yeah. I think, it, I think, I was almost like, I feel like it sort of offended both people. Like, conservatives thought, you know, oh, this is gross, whereas liberals thought, oh, that's pathetic. Yeah. You know, kind of, yep. yeah. But then Ford made a major calf during the debate. He botched a line and said, There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. 
here's the problem. The Soviets have basically been dominating some Europe since World War II, <laughs> yeah, after li- World War II. Yeah, literally for like the last like Now, Ford years. actually meant to say that the spirit of Eastern Europe had been crushed, but it came out wrong, and he refused to correct his mistake. Uh-oh. This didn't doom his candidacy, but couldn't have helped. Now, this was a really low turnout election. Only 54% of people cast their votes. This is the lowest turnout Ouch. since World War II. Yikes. Which just shows people had really lost faith in the system. Yeah. They're just like, I don't even want to yeah. participate in this. But thing. even then, Carter only won 297 to 240. So not that big of a margin as you might expect. Yeah. I, for some reason, I thought of it as more of a blowout than that. Yep. So that's what I had to say about Carter before we rank him. And Curtis, what are your thoughts? All right. So... I mean, um, Ford, not Carter. During oh, during right. during a snippet of that, I was looking up a little bit of like what Ford believed in terms of like racial policy. Mm-hmm. Dude was, by all accounts, like very pro like like he was very pro like desegregation. Yes, and like as a senator, I believe I read that he voted in favor of abolishing like segregation every single bill that came across his desk when he was. When he was in the rep- House of Reps. Mm. Which is good. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in the Ranking Presence podcast, being a good person only gets you so far. Yeah, yeah. But he did legitimately seem like a decent guy. Yeah, he definitely seemed like a decent guy, kind of stuck in a bad situation. He was very much a conservative, but willing to negotiate and willing... And uh... definitely made a couple liberal deals in terms of economic policy. Yeah, he was... He was definitely willing, and he wanted to cool things down with the Soviet Union. Th- that being said... He was not very effective. And, alright, so so America America is a front lawn. Yep. And Ford walks out onto his front lawn, and there's a bunch of rakes. Yep. And you could look at the rakes and go around them, but what Ford did was step on every single rake mm. and get whacked in the face yep. every single time. And he started with the biggest rake, which was Nixon. <laughs> yep. Okay, so we can, and uh, this might come up in a file cog, so I don't want to get too far into no, it. No, I, I, uh, I have a slightly different one, so okay. you can go ahead. Okay, so the question of whether or not he should have pardoned Nixon, I get the argument that he's like, okay, we've gone through a lot. We just need to move on as a country. But here's the problem. By doing that, you set a precedence that the president can't be held responsible. Yep. If Ford had gone after Nixon and actually got him prosecuted, I think he could have won re-election easily. I think he could have. Yeah, because yeah, people would have viewed him, okay, he's got he's actually healed America. Because you can't just have mercy. You have to have justice. Yep, you know, absolutely. You have to have that justice come in and say, okay, we're not going to put up with this. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, America was founded on literally, like, Dealing with injustice from, like, a higher power. Yes. So you have to deal with that, and he really dropped the ball on that. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't think he was a very, I mean, kind of effective, I guess you would say, but not that much. Yeah, and, like, I mean, it's hard to, like, separate, like, his effectiveness from his public opinion, because, like, Mm -hmm. everybody hated pretty much everything he did. Yeah, exactly. almost unilaterally. Yeah, so he, he was stuck in a tough situation, yeah. which is, you know, it's it's hard to say one way or the yeah. other if he would have done better. Mm-hmm. I think he could have been more effective if he was just a normal president. Yeah. I but, mean, I think that I think that he had he had a low ceiling for his mm-hmm. potential, yeah. but he did go even underneath that. Mm-hmm. Cuz like he he, he underdelivered even from that perspective. Yeah. So, I think the real question is, honestly, so okay, just to review for our listeners, let's go through real quick. So an F tier, starting from... So, okay. F tier, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan. Let's go bottom to top. Okay, it's, it's so bottom, to... Andrew Johnson, 
James Buchanan, Pierce, Fillmore. D-tier, William Henry Harrison, Herbert Hoover, Martin Van Buren, Harding, Tyler, and Andrew Jackson. C-tier, Cleveland, Arthur, Coolidge, Nixon. B-tier, Taylor, Garfield, Wilson, John Adams. A-tier, Hayes, Madison, Taft, Benjamin Harrison, James Polk, Eisenhower, and LBJ. A-plus tier, John Quincy Adams, Grant, William McKinley, Thomas Jefferson, JFK, Harry Truman. And in S-tier, we have Washington, James Monroe, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and FDR. So, I mean, obviously, we're sons of Gerald. He's got to be number one oh, right easily, off the bat. Oh, easily, easily. Like, with, without a debate. Okay. okay. So, um, what I'm thinking right now mm-hmm. is D-tier. Mm. Now, let me let me break down who we have in D-tier. Mm-hmm. We have William Henry Harrison, who did nothing. Yeah. And who said he was going to do nothing, yeah. even though he died. Then, we have Hoover, Buren, and Harding, who I would say were just... On the whole, ineffective. Yeah. Herbert Hoover caused the Great Depression. Yep. Buren did nothing during, basically, yep. the panic. Harding was just, you know, corrupt. Yeah. And then we have the flaming racists at the top of yeah. D-tier. John Tyler and Andrew Jackson, who were definitely effective, but, like, did terrible stuff. Yeah. So... So I am thinking, and uh, I'll throw this out there. You throw mm-hmm. me out with a counter offer if you have one. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of putting um, good old Gerald Ford above Harding, but below Tyler. Yeah, I think that's a good spot for him because he's just he just bungled the first biggest thing he had to do. Yeah, he bungled it, mm-hmm. and that that's why. Like, arguably, the like in terms of presidential responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's take wars out of it. Yeah, like the first. Okay, so this is... I'm, I'm already breaking my own rule. Mm-hmm. But, like, you get what I mean when I say, like, the biggest thing since, like, Reconstruction yep. that was bungled by a president to that degree. Yes. Like, yeah. I, and I don't think that, like, not party Nixon is as horrible as like, bo- as, like, bungling Reconstruction. But, like, it's real bad. Yeah, it is. But I have a segment called How Ooh, Dare You. How Dare You? What, what, what does this entail? So, okay, How Dare You is where we basically take the side of the conservative. Because, you know, we're, we're both liberals yeah, here. Yeah, pretty yeah, liberal, yeah, pretty yeah, progressive. Yeah. So we take the side of the conservative or the side of the president we argue for them. Okay. Yeah. The 70s were a crazy time. Our good friend <laughs> Matt McClellan talked a lot about that. There was a lot of people doing a lot of drugs. There was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of sex, a lot of rock and roll. Okay. What the country needed was not some big trial where we put the past on display. Mm-hmm. What the country needed is we need to come back around and we need to calm down. Everybody lower the temperature a little <laughs> bit. That's what the country needed. And Gerald Ford was a man who was willing to sacrifice his political future to do the right let me just, thing. Let me just interject a quick how dare you into this. Because yeah. uh, did he really lower the temperature at all? Man, you could. I don't think so. It seemed like people were pretty angry. And I mean, people tried to kill him. So I don't think it really lowered it. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep with the how dare you, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's tough with some president. It's tough with this one because it really just is an awful decision because you're... Yes, okay, like, the political establishment would be like, okay, we move along, but the American people aren't going to move along from that. No. You're no. not going to win, and mm-hmm. that's... No matter what, your party's just going to lose in the midterms, too. Mm-hmm. It's it, it just wasn't a good decision politically, and it wasn't a good decision, you know morally yeah yeah Yeah. it was just like bad all the way around yeah 
But do you have a final caucus for us? I do indeed. And uh, as we kind of grow the whole how dare you segment, we'll we'll get more fleshed out as we go. But like with certain presidents, it's hard to argue on their behalf. Yes, it is. And I mean... Because it's like we didn't do one last time for Nixon because it's Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. We did maybe a little one the first one. Like a little bit, but like... Yeah. Whereas for like his actual policy, it's like, eh, you know, it was kind of... It's kind of milquetoast. Yeah. There's really nothing to be too angry about. Yeah, and kind of uninspiring from like both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, which you could say might be a good thing, you know, yeah. moderate. Mm-hmm. So what's your final caucus for us? All right. So the first question is a little bit of a rhetorical question, mm-hmm. and I'll, so I'll read both of them in a row. Mm-hmm. All right, so question number one. Is it acceptable that America has had a president not elected by its people? Ah, that's a good one. And the question underneath that is... Should an amendment be installed that demands a special election in the case of both president and vice president being removed? Mm, a special election. I quite like the sound of a special election. I do too. You know, because, okay, you can make the argument when VPs have come into power before that at least Americans voted for them. Like, yeah. okay, they may not have liked them that much, they may not have thought they became president, but when you vote for a vice president, you're voting with basically the... The um the intention that okay if something happens to the president this guy's going to take over well, and or, or I feel, woman's and I feel like over. a lot of people vote like specifically like if they have like VPs tied to their decision they're like oh I might not like the main candidate but I feel like this person will really help balance them out like exactly with with Trump like everyone knew he wasn't religious at all despite yeah. whatever he said yeah but so when he got Pence a known religious conservative mm-hmm. on his ticket. A lot of people like that I knew were like, okay, I'm okay with this now. Yeah. You can even see that with Kamala, Kamala Harris. Yeah. Like, yes, Joe Biden has had some questionable things with race, but now he's got Kamala Harris, who's, you know, a black woman and mm-hmm. Indian, half a black, half Indian, mm-hmm. so mixed heritage. So, yeah, I think when you look at this question, I get it was a unique circumstance. Yeah. It's weird, a, weird circumstance. It's a weird, weird circumstance. Here's the problem. When you just appoint a VP through Congress... I get that you have to have someone as VP, but you create a weird situation where potentially, you know, someone could be leading the country who wasn't even chosen by the American people in any particular way. Mm -hmm. Like, basically, an unelected person. Now, they would have be able to face re-election at some point. Yeah. But you still have them holding the reins of power when no American chose them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think maybe not a constitutional amendment, but maybe a law that says if the vice president... The vice president will have to be, you know, in a special election. But then again, you can make the same argument be like, okay, what about the cabinet members? Because, you know, it goes down the list. Yeah, like all of the appointments. Yeah. Maybe it should be, okay, if someone in the cabinet has to take over, they only have very limited powers. So, like, maybe, like, because, like, in, in like, coaching Mm. and sports, if a coach gets fired for the remainder of that... Um, for the remainder of that year, for the remainder of that season, there's an interim coach that's like, um, that's like, oh, what's what's the word? Um, just like, yeah, just keeping the installed. Team yeah, yeah, like they're they're yeah. promote they're promoted internally yeah. to interim head coach status, yeah. and they finish out the season, and then the team usually fires them and hires a real coach. Yeah, normally. So I'm wondering if there would even be an appropriate time to do that with a sitting like appointed quote-unquote vp or president yeah 
I mean, maybe like midterms or something? Yeah, yeah. They should be like an interim president who then part of the midterms and they've chosen whether to install. Yeah, but the, the, the other problem is, um, say like you have a president and a VP mm. and the VP resigns. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be kind of messed up if, or at least from like precedent, where like if it's a Republican president... And we hold a special election for their VP and a Democrat gets elected. Yeah. Like, that's that's a little too Thomas Jefferson for some people. <laughs> yeah, that's a little too much. It should probably be some more like a primary. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's a primary where registered Republicans can select their VP. Or, like, based on whatever the state's laws are. Because, like, in yeah. some states, like, you don't have to be registered. Yeah, it gets it. tricky. It gets yeah. really tricky. You open up elect, a bunch of cans of worms. They could elect someone super conservative, and they would have, wait a second, these Republicans are electing someone, and <laughs> none of the rest of us get to vote. Yeah. It's it's really tricky. I I think there should just be some process in line where there's sort of an... It's some term. process that's a little more democratic. Yeah. Or you could just make the argument that if a president steps down, that sort of, in essence, is sort of a admission that the party has lost the presidency True. and then they have to compete for it in the election mm-hmm. which i mean it, it's a tough question and yeah. so like i guess the question would be like if say if if a sitting president or a vp like were to step down like should just a tum- completely new presidential election start to take place mm-hmm. probably like in a, the midterm with like yeah. a completely new president completely new vice president like literally like challenging them Mm, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think, okay, if the VP steps down, I think the president should be able to put in an interim VP. Yeah. And then in the midterms, that VP has to run, essentially, like, primary style. Mm, yeah. okay. Yeah, unless the president steps down, in which case, in the midterm, then the VP has to run an actual presidential election. Yeah. And, obviously, I mean, part of this is due to precedence because... When John Tyler, the first VP to take over, people thought, uh, it's a VP, they don't have any real power. But John Tyler... He acted like a president. He acted so. like a president. And that set the precedence for all sorts of things. It set precedence for, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, and who's in our S tier. that's why he's above Gerald. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, John Tyler, for how forgotten he is, he's probably one of the more influential presidents yeah. just because of that. Definitely. Yeah, that's Even a... though, like, wasn't he the one who was buried a Confederate? Yeah, see, he, he, he defected to the Confederacy and was the only president whose death was not, you know, announced in the White House. It wasn't a big deal. He was just a, big... a Confederate. Yeah, just a Confederate, you know. Just betrayed his country. <laughs> Treason. Treason, yeah. But yeah, that's an interesting question, and it's, uh... Not an easy answer to that question. No, there's no easy answer, especially because it's a really gray area and it's a really weird situation with Nixon. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing with Nixon. Nixon just threw everything off balance. Yeah. And then we enter, because of that off balance, we enter into a new era of American politics, mm-hmm. which arguably we're still in. Yeah. To a certain degree. But this has been a great episode and fabulous. That was Gerald Ford. But tune next week as we talk about Jimmy Carter. Good old Jimmy. A man who is both maligned and loved by many and is the first living president to this date of this episode. Stay alive, Jimmy. Please. Yes. The first president who is still alive that we're going to talk about. So stay tuned for that. Once again, I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. Stay ranking. Rank.